official Hawaiian day. Um, I promise next time we might as well just put that in like the email, you know, so if, you, if, you, if, you, if you've got one, you can wear it. Dan was a rebel. He put on the flamingos today, but uh, he took them off again. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. So either way, either way, here's what we want to do this morning. We want to make sure that as we come to church and as we uh, come together to fellowship and to talk about God, that we are getting into his word. Yes. But we also want to come together and we want to worship together. And we want to worship God specifically. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to see and, and, try, and, get, I want to try and give you a glimpse of, of how the Bible, the Word of God, describes what God looks like. All throughout the scriptures, we, we come across different encounters where people kind of come face to face with God, so to speak whether he's descending upon a mountain to meet with his people or whether he is, he is in a vision on a throne in heaven. I want you to, to try and grasp this glimpse with me. And, and, and the reason is because for me, it drastically altered the way I lived my life. And so if you have a Bible, here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to the second book in Exodus, and I want you to find your way to chapter 19. And if you don't have a Bible this morning, first and foremost... We would invite you to grab one over here and take it home with you, all right? Over here on this window so we've got signs. And they're just for you. That's their purpose. That's why they're there. Secondly, we're also going to have the words on the screen. But, but either way, whether you're reading along in your own copy or whether you're looking at the screens, here's what I want you to do. Picture this in your mind's eye. Picture this. Are you ready? Look down in chapter 19 of Exodus and look for verse 16. This, this encounter takes place immediately following when the great prophet Moses leads God's people out of slavery in Egypt, out of slavery into the promise of the land that's to come, but the relationship they can have right now. Look at this in verse 16 and picture it with me as we read. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Oh. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top, and so Moses went up. Keep that picture in your mind of what happens when God shows up. And then turn with me to the last book of the Bible. In the book of Revelation, turn to chapter 4. When the people of God first encounter him, he descends upon this mountain and he's shrouded in, 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 in cloud and smoke and lightning. And his voice is like this trumpet blast piercing through the silence. And it's like this thunder, it's got this rumble, it's got this, this 
scary intensity. And I want you to see that this is not just some random occurrence in, in Exodus, but it's the picture of who God is and what he looks like. So look in chapter 4 of the book of Revelation. And look in verse 2. Picture this while we read. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne. It stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, these precious stones. And around the throne was a rainbow like an ore that had the appearance of an emerald. And around that throne were 24 smaller thrones, and on them seated were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne, are you ready? From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and back. And the first living creature was like a lion, and the second was like an ox, creatures of majesty and power. The third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, majestic, intelligent. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him. See this picture of God. Never seeing his face, his spirit, he's, he's, he's too holy. But around him is surrounded this, this, this aura of like green energy and smoke and cloud and lightning and thunder is emitting from him. Every time he speaks, the room shakes or the mountain where he's seated shakes. This is, this is our God. He's not some made-up fairy tale. This man has power because he's no man. He's the creator of the universe. And, and I remember it was, it was around eight years ago when I was first starting into seminary. Taylor was with me. We were taking some classes by a professor named Dr. Kilpatrick. And he brought us to some of these scriptures to show us that God shows up in the Bible. And when he shows up, it's terrifying. My mind went back to these scriptures one day about, about eight years back. Before Melinda and I were married, I was living with a friend in Millington, and she lived in Bartland. So there was a time where I was with her. It was super late, but there was this really severe storm that hit. Have you guys ever been caught in the middle of like a, a crazy storm? And I'm not talking about like rain and lightning and all that stuff. I'm talking like, you know, trees are blowing down and, and like tornadoes are supposedly touching ground. So that was the kind of storm, and there was this break. You could see it, two cells. There was this break in the storm, and I knew if I was going to get back home to Millington, I needed to leave right then. And that's when I learned a very valuable lesson, which is that, you know, in the Memphis area, something about the geography, storms always miss, like, everything else. 
and they go straight to Millington. And so as I was driving down the 385 and, 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 and trying to get off at like this small street like I would normally take or whatever, all of a sudden the storm starts up again. And I'm caught in the middle of like sideways wind and, and, and my car, this stupid light Honda. It's the only time in my life I've ever wished I had like some kind of crazy four-wheel truck, okay? And so I'm like, I'm, I'm like being buffeted from side to side. I mean, I see this, the, the rain, whatever, it's green. Have you ever been out in a storm at night and it's green? And this, the, the thunder's going and I mean, it, just, it just sounds like I'm in the middle of this like this dryer machine, you know? Go, 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 go. And, and, and it's there that I've got to be, I've got to admit to you, I'm like, I am the biggest idiot in the world. Why am I driving in this? And in the middle of this moment, like, when everything in me, like, you know, you're supposed to, like, apparently stop, get in a ditch or something crazy, you know? But I'm just, like, driving, like, five miles per hour in the middle of the storm, trying to make it home. And, and the whole time, I am terrified. I'm praying to God, like, God, you know, pr- like, protect me, keep me safe, help me to get home, like, you know, just... You know, whatever, just be here right now. And it was in my spirit that the God was like, I am. And all of a sudden, like, you know, in the scariest moment of my life, it like shifts. And all of a sudden, I see another aspect of God as he begins to flood my mind with Exodus 19 and Revelation 3. In the middle of this storm, uncontrollable. What man can, can speak to that storm and say, stop, I'm trying to get home. Instead, I'm, I'm terrified. I'm insignificant. A tornado could touch down and it would be my end. And I see this picture of God as this uncontrollable deity who's terrifyingly powerful. But all of that power works together for one purpose, which is to bring So in the middle of me being scared to death, I found this moment of worship like I had never experienced before. Still scared to death. Still driving in the middle of the storm. Still finding out later that it's because two tornadoes had touched down in the Millington area at the exact time that I was driving home into Millington. But worship nonetheless, because I felt like I was coming into a face-to-face encounter with God. And it reminds me of Isaiah 6, when Isaiah, he has this vision of God, and, and he sees him on this throne, and all of a sudden, like, the room is trembling. And, and, and immediately his response to encountering the terrifyingly powerful presence of a holy God is to cry out, Woe is me! For I am I'm ruined, I'm undone, because my eyes, they've seen God, and I'm a sinner! I'm a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of of unclean lips. And I love the redemptive moment of Isaiah 6 when when God sends an angel in the middle of that moment when Isaiah is crying out because he he comes face to face with God, yes, but when he comes face to face with the holiness of God, he also comes face to face with his brokenness. And then God sends this angel to touch his lips with a burning coal from the altar. And he says, your, you, your sins have been cleansed. And the work of God purifies that new one. Because although our encounters with the true God 
might be very terrifying because of who he is, we can trust that all his work leads to redeeming everything you've ever been through and bringing you to himself into a point of praise and worship and he deserves it. See, we were all created to worship. And this morning we're talking about kingdom worship. So in this, this kingdom series, walking through this concept, this, this vision for 2019 for our church of people connecting together and worshiping God together in kingdom communities. It breaks down last week as kingdom people and what they look like and how kingdom people are different because of Jesus. They, they believe in Jesus, they think like Jesus, and that leads them to even live like Jesus. But now we get to this moment where we kind of encounter this concept of worship. And it's what we should be doing every day of our lives, but cert- certainly when we come to church on a Sunday morning, our, 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 our life should sing and our, our, our lips should sing praises to God. Adoration, worth, ascribing to Him value. That's what these songs are for. But how many of you are often sometimes like me, and when you come to church and the songs go on the screen and you, they start singing, you don't really feel it? Or maybe music just really isn't your thing, and so during the singing, you just kind of stand there. And as men, we almost even get like a negative rap because, you know, it's almost like we're heartless, cold creatures that have no emotions. And that might even be your excuse. Well, I'm just not really an emotional person. And, and all I've got to say to that is, man, that's BS. Like, you're not. You, on a Sunday afternoon, you may be unemotional on Sunday morning, but on a Sunday afternoon in front of the TV screen, you better believe emotion coming out. And so really, it's just all a matter of what excites you and what is your source of joy and what you're worshiping. Because we're all created to worship, regardless of whether or not we know God. Let me, let me promise you something. You're worshiping something. And chances are, it's just not the ultimate source of joy. It's something petty something man-made that will never actually satisfy. And so that's why it's important this morning, morning is we're going to talk about kingdom and we're going to look at what it means for kingdom worship. I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4 because that's where we're going to be. Jesus has something to say about worship. It's a very famous passage because in, in, in John chapter 4 and verse 23, maybe you've heard this before. He says this, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. But listen to this next line. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God desires our worship, but notice the worship is in spirit and in truth. It's a fancy way of saying with our heart and our mind, our whole being. And I love this. I love the idea of worshiping in spirit. And that, that talking about my heart, that that means that, that, that there's emotions tied to worship. If some of you kind of were like me, you came up in a church that was kind of devoid of emotions, perhaps. You know? And I'm not knocking the old hymns, because they've got a lot of great theological truth in them. But sometimes you can kind of walk into a moment where it just seems like everyone's just singing out of rote memory. And they're just reading words off of a page of a book or on a screen. And there's no, there's no heart engagement. 
while at the same time you might also uh, have encountered some people or churches where you walk in and all of a sudden everybody's just going crazy and they're, and they're flailing all over the place because their hearts are totally overcome with joy and craziness. But there's no like theological truth undergirding the movement. But God desires us to worship him in spirit and in truth. And I love what Matt Chandler says about this. He's, he's a, a pastor of, of the village church, and he says, listen, listen. Our minds are informed by the word of God, but the spirit's presence engages and inflames our hearts. But both are necessary for worship. And I want to try and show that to you this morning. All throughout this chapter of John, chapter 4. But to do that, I want to leave you with this statement. We're going to unpack it step by step. Are you ready? Kingdom worship is heartfelt and Christ-centered. Kingdom worship is heartfelt. That means there's emotions there. There's heart engagement there. But it's also Christ-centered. To say it another way, it's Christ-exalted. We do not exalt the emotions or that feeling of worship. Because then you're worshiping the moment. You're not worshiping God. But those emotions are expressing what we know inside is true. That God is king. And his power is terrifyingly brilliant. But it works out for your good. So kingdom worship is heartfelt but Christ centered. That's, that's another way of saying what Jesus says in John 4, 23. That the Father is seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. That means our heart and our mind. Our, our, our faith is not at odds with our intellect. And our intellect is not at odds with our faith. They inform and encourage and inflame each other. The goal of Bible study is not to know more. The goal of Bible study is for you to see God and for, for awe to capture your heart and to steal your affections away from all those petty little things that we, that we pine after, like the next car, the better job, more money, the next paycheck, the next video game, whatever it is for you, another gun, the 10-point box, whatever. God alone deserves our worship because he alone is glorious. And so the deepest pursuit of our hearts and minds should be God. I mentioned it last week and several weeks prior to that, that I was reading this book called Revive Us Again by Walter Kaiser. And in this introduction, he brings up this concept. He says, look, if, if the, the primary source of your excitement and joy is not God, and it's something or anything else, then you are guilty of idolatry. Worshiping a false god, whether it's yourself or stuff. And we all fall into that trap all the time because you were created to worship. And if you're not worshiping God, you are worshiping something. And so the deepest pursuit of our hearts and our minds should be only he can actually satisfy you. Let me show you this in John chapter 4. Raise your hand if you're familiar with the story. John 4, Samaritan woman at the well. 
kind of sense some people have heard of this. It's a very, very good encounter. See, the book of John is all about encounters with Jesus because the reason he is writing is so that you may know and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And so in chapter 3, we encounter this religious man named Nicodemus, and and he encounters Jesus, seeking how he might gain eternal life or who Jesus might be. And he walks away, having been told a lot of things, but we're left not sure how he responded. But then in chapter 4, to contrast chapter 3, we encounter the Samaritan woman on the lowest rung of the social ladder, broken in sin, a social outcast. And she's going to encounter Jesus, but you're going to learn something far more valuable from her encounter than you will with Nicodemus. Because her heart will respond in worship. But in order for that to happen, Jesus is going to have to tackle some barriers in her life, some barriers to worship. So if you're here this morning and we were singing some songs and they were pretty good, but it was too loud or it wasn't your vibe or like you just weren't really feeling it in that moment, then, then, then first let me say I've been there. Second, let me say it's not right. Third, let me say there's hope for you. The chances are the reason that you had that, that, that barrier to worshiping the king is probably going to be one of the things we talk about this morning. And it's going to be things that Jesus has to deal with in our lives. So look, look back at the start of chapter 4, and we're going to dive right into this. Father God, we ask that you move in this place. Fill me with your spirit. Allow us to read your words and understand what you're saying to us. Change us from the inside. In Jesus' name, amen. Look in John 4. Let's go ahead and skip down to verse 5. And so Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, the infamous well. And so Jesus, who was wearied as he had been from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So Jesus has just been kind of chased out of of Judea because the Pharisees are not really liking what he's saying, and he's going back to his home region of Galilee. But to do that, he has to travel through this in-between region. Can you picture that with me? And that in-between region is called Samaria. And it's this place that that belongs to the the ancient descendants of the northern kingdom back when they split in two. And And when God brought a judgment upon his people and led his people again into slavery to the Assyrians and the Babylonians, there were some that stayed behind. But the Assyrians had a plan. See, they, they populated the region with foreigners so that they would intermingle and bring their religion with them. And so the Samaritans were seen by the Jews as like these half-breeds. And that's important for us because, listen, there is no amount of racism that you're familiar with that would, that would accurately capture the racism between a Jew and a Samaritan, primarily coming from the Jew towards the Samaritan. They would fight wars. The, the Jews were, were infamous for sacking the Samaritans' temple, even though they worshipped the same God, just in a different place. And so there's no dealings between the Jews and Samaritans. And, and do not miss the fact that in this cultural context, it was also equally strange for a man to speak to a, a woman he doesn't know. 
And so here's Jesus sitting at this well, and he's there on purpose. See, the town is another mile in, and he sent his disciples ahead to go get food. And yet he stays at this well at the hottest part of the day with nothing to draw water from it. And all of a sudden, at the sixth hour, about noon, we find this woman who comes alone, which is strange in and of itself, but it will become clear later. A woman in verse 7 from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, you hear the tension, for a drink? A woman of Samaria. Here's a parenthesis for you. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and he who was speaking to you, you would ask him and he would give you living water. What a strange response. And so the woman says, Sir, how in the world are you going to offer me living water when you don't even have a cup to get anything from this well? Are you greater than our father Jacob who built this well? Are you greater than his family, his children, his livestock who all drank from this well? By implication, are you greater than everything that Israel was founded on because it all comes from those who survived because of this well? If only she knew who she was speaking to. Because the answer is yes. Jesus is greater. And here's why. See, the first barrier to worship is is the wrong source of joy. This woman, day after day, comes at noon at the hottest part of the day to avoid any interaction with anyone else who might know her story or her social you know, issues or her, her, her relational wounds that we're about to dive into. And she comes there day after day from, to draw water from a hundred foot well by herself because every day she needs more and more water. And so Jesus says, if you knew who I was, And who was speaking to you, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. Water that that never ends, and it quenches thirst permanently. It satisfies. But see, the woman's barrier to, to even seeing Jesus for who he is, is that she has the wrong source of joy. And this works out even in our lives. Matt Chandler says this, we're drinking from the wrong well, bro. And so, so day after day, the, the, the things we turn to, the wells we seek to draw our life water from, are only going to ever end up leaving you dry. Here's some wells for you. The well of money and stuff. It's, it's that part of our life where, you know, we always have to have the, the next and the best and the, and the, and the better. And, and, and Apple even has caught on to that. So every, every six months, there's another version of the iPhone. And there are people who buy the new edition every six months. And we all love the feeling of what it's like to, to find the new and the best and the better. But that stuff, it's just, it's just things. And, and as soon as you have that feeling of, yeah, I just got this, the next thing comes along that you need or want. And so your life never ends. It's like this unending series of having to have more because stuff and money does not satisfy. The second well that, we, that is the wrong source for our joy would be relationships and sex. 
where we, where we, we pine after the, the, the next and the hotter and then the whatever. Our culture is wrapped up in this. And it's crazy how the most often searched things on Google is porn. And it's crazy that it's on our shows and our billboards and, it, and, and, it, and, it, and it's sick and disgusting and, and, and people pay money for this thing and they, and they trade in their wives for something better and never satisfying. And yet there's a lesson from King Solomon in Ecclesiastes. A man who had it all. Traded in one wife after the other. Had 300 wives and had all of the, 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 the villas and had all of the ranches and had all the horses and the, and the things and the stuff and the wealth and the money. He had it all. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, he gives this scary statement to us. He says it's all meaningless. I know what it's like to have all these things and the end pursuit is I'm dry and empty. And I've squandered my life trying to get more and better. If only we could learn from that guy. And instead, we're stuck in this in-between spot where we still want something more and better. But, it, but that pursuit of people always ends poorly because they're imperfect. And they themselves struggle with sin. And they themselves are pining after other things. And the same people that that love you today might stab you in the back later. They might be saying nice things to your face, but around the corner, terrible things. So the well of relationships is meaningless. And maybe the last well that, that I can think of would be the well of respect or success. It's that well where we always want the next position, the higher status, or to do something that is seen and affirmed in us, where, where people are like, man, great job, you did so good, like, you set up that entire, you know, meeting and you ran it so well, here, I'll tell you what, we'll make you the chief financial officer and you can make a million dollars, you know, and, 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 and we see that as being the thing, and so we look at people who drive cars that have the nicer car and we think, oh, wow, they've really, they must have made it. And I must not be there yet, you know, and we and we just look for those things. But what's crazy about seeking the approval of people and positions is that that approval's fleeting. Hey, you did a great job that meeting. Next time we expect even better. And eventually you'll reach a point where you can't get that. And they hang you up for the next meeting. The well of respect and success is empty. It's empty. And here's the craziest part about it. In the well of respect and success, we desire the approval of man. Isn't it crazy how God already did everything possible to show you that you are nothing? You are everything. He gave up the most precious thing to him, which was his son, to gain you. And yet we're content to find our approval in sinful people that don't even like you. Listen, this, this barrier has been a barrier for me. Last year, I, I spent, man, the entire football season in three fantasy football leagues. On the internet every day, researching the players and getting the drop on the other people on the waiver wire and putting things into positions and making the most advantage of, of players getting hurt so that I would win. I won. I won fantasy football. So we're all clear. 
with the prize promised me, my precious Russell Wilson jersey, never came. It was empty talk from the league manager, man. I put all that effort, all that time into trying to win this stupid little thing on my phone, and I did it, and I still don't have my jersey. I still don't have I'm going to see him today. We're going to have words. But listen, as, as, as we were talking with uh, uh, the, the Gafford Life Group, the subject of Fantasy Football League came up, and I'm in at three again, FYI. But my wife made this statement. It was like we weren't even married that year. All right, come on. Somebody else in this room has been there. And y'all are like laughing at my... What I'm saying is it was sinful for me because it led to this moment where my wife felt like I wasn't even necessarily even on the couch next to her. And what I'm trying to say is that crushed me. So if I win by doing nothing in these leagues, I mean, God just is... He's, he knows that I'm doing the right thing by giving up, right? But, but listen, I'm serious that barrier for trying to find the joy and that success and what people would say if I won and I did, and it was all meaningless because the next year I've got to do it again with no jersey. But that's us. And my mind was stolen, totally hyper-focused on these players and their names and their stats and their points in the games. There was no room for the joy of God. There was no room for worship. And so, church, I'm confessing sin to you. If you don't believe me, let, let me read to you Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, because here's the problem. These wells that are superficial, and they always lead us dry, listen, they are serious things in our life because they steal our affections from God, and they put them on things that are meaningless. Look in chapter 2, verse 3. Otherwise, just listen to me. Read it. For my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, sound familiar, and have hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can't even hold any. It's a sin against God for me to waste my life trying to find joy and fill my life with trivial things and imperfect things that never satisfy. It's a sin. And that leads us to the next barrier as we see Jesus is, is meeting with this, this, this woman at the well. And he, and he brings up this idea of living water that satisfies and how it only comes from Him. But then check this out. Look down in verse in verse, uh, let's just go with 14. But whoever drinks of this water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Verse 15. And the woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I don't have to come back to this well. And she's speaking physically. She doesn't yet know that Jesus is trying to reveal something to her about himself and who he is. But she, she likes what he's saying. And she wants what he's talking about. But Jesus knows that before she can truly encounter him and worship him and, 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 and drink of the living water from him, there's another barrier in her life that has to be dealt with, and it's painful. 
but read these words in love, because that's what Jesus is doing here. He says in verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And if you know the story, you know how she answers, I have no husband. And then Jesus says, you are right in saying you have no husband, because you've had five. And the man you're living with now, you're exchanging lint for sex, and he's not your husband. And we might think that it is harsh that Jesus would bring to mind this sin, but the second barrier to kingdom worship is unrepentant sin. And, and if we house in us unrepentant, unconfessed sin, it, it will cause a barrier between us and God. If you are a believer, look, it doesn't mean you lose your salvation, but you better believe you ain't going to be feeling worship that next day. Because there's going to be a disconnect in that moment. But if, if you've never given your life to Jesus and you haven't submitted to the kingdom of God, making Him king of your life, then I guarantee you, you won't understand the idea of worship. Because it'll sound really strange to you. How in the world could singing songs to God about who He is be, possibly be better than my kill streak? How could it be possibly better than, than my promotion, my paycheck? my wife, my kids? How could it possibly be better than these things? But unrepentant sin creates a barrier. And when I talk about repentance, and that's why Jesus is bringing this to her mind, He's not bringing condemnation in this moment. He's just stating fact. This is the sin in your life. And He does so, convicting her of sin, to bring her to a point where she sees her need. For a savior. Jesus said of himself, he did not come for the healthy. He came for the sick. You can't enter the kingdom of God until you recognize your utter need for him. And that's serious. Repentance is simply this. Let me break it down into three A's for you. It means to accept responsibility, ask forgiveness, Accept responsibility for the brokenness in your life. Maybe not all directly caused by you, but it's, it, you are living in it. I had to come to the point where I recognized fantasy football was a sin for me. And I could not allow it to have the control that it had over my heart. Because kingdom worship is heartfelt and Christ-centered. And so I had to accept responsibility for my actions and my sin, and I asked forgiveness, and now I'm acting differently. I'm totally squandering these three A's now. I'm not trying to do all the research. I don't want my mind to be enveloped by this stuff. But it does threaten to be replaced by something else. And so I must be watchful. Believers, man, church family, there is a barrier between you and him that comes from unrepentant sin. Even if it's something small, because we, we tend to think of sin sometimes as these great big things like murder and cheatings and craziness, and we compare ourselves to other people and say, I must be pretty good if I'm not like them. And the sin of finding my joy in something broken is just as heinous to the Lord. Because he's a destroyer of sin. 
little rock in the sand is ever shifting. And so her response is, well, I perceive you're a prophet, sir. And then she starts to bring up something about worshiping and how our ancestors worship on this mountain and, and, and you people say that it should be in Jerusalem and all this stuff. Look down in, in verse uh, 21. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. Barrier three, a lack of knowledge. Some of us, the barrier between us worshiping God is because we don't fully recognize who Jesus is. We don't have that picture of the terrifying power of God, this being who, who, is, who is totally outside our realm of control and yet desires to know you personally. And so when Jesus says in verse 23 that comes up next that we must worship God in spirit and in truth, it is heartfelt and Christ-centered. The mind informs the heart but the heart is inflamed with passion for God. And the two of those things coming together is worship. And we must seek to draw from the well, the source of joy, which is Christ, and not the things of this world, if we're going to come to Jesus and bring Him adoration and kingdom worship. And what I love is what happens as a result of all these things. See, without knowing it, she encounters Jesus. And he starts to help her see him for who he is. I am the living water that will cause you to never be thirsty again. And he starts to bring to her mind the things that are in the way of her seeing him that way. He has to show her for who she is. Someone who is, who is broken and in need of redemption and stuff and other men. And the next guy is never going to bring for her that only Jesus can. And so he tells her what worship looks like. And all of a sudden, things start to click. And if you read further down, she, she decides to go back into the town. And her heart's just welling over. She doesn't even necessarily fully know what's going on. But she goes back into the town. And she says to anyone she comes in contact to, all the people she was trying to avoid by going to the well at noon, all the people who know her, her multiple husbands and her secret sin past life, but she doesn't care about those things anymore because instead there is, her heart is inflamed for the ultimate source of joy and she must express it and praise and share. Come meet the man who told me everything I ever did. Could this man be the Christ? Could he be the Messiah? And so these, these people in this village, they believe and they come as a result of her testimony, which was nothing more than that. Come meet this dude. And so they come, and they hear from him, and they, they learn from him, and all of a sudden, maybe people are coming to faith in Jesus, and they ask him to stay, a Jew, in a town in Samaria, because their hearts are now inflamed. And they even look to this woman, and they say at the very, you know, towards the end of chapter 4, look, we no longer believe just because you said something, we believe because we know that he is the Son of God. And so our expression of worship when our deep, the deepest pursuit of our heart and our mind is God, listen, it bubbles over. And that's what fills your heart is the joy of Christ. And you can't help but bring it up. You can't help but invite people in. Because, listen, it's never joy until it's expressed. You might think the, 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 the wide receiver made an awesome play. 
But it ain't true joy for your fantasy football league until you're off the couch going, yeah. Joy is expressed. Listen, when I come home, my son, there is no doubt in my mind the kid finds joy when I come home. Because when I come home, the kid comes running with this, this smile. Ah, you, know, you can probably hear him right now back there. And, 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 and he comes running straight up to me, trusting that I'm going to catch him. And if he doesn't, he wants to try to play a little coy with me. What he does, he kind of comes in the room and he sees me, smiles, and it turns around and like runs because he wants me to pursue him. Because every single one of us has that innate need to be loved and to be pursued. God of the universe sees you the way I see you. I would never not catch my kid. I ditched Taylor super early on Friday night so I could go see my kid. Sorry, Taylor. And Jesus gives up everything so that he can gain you. And when you feel the truth of the gospel informing your mind to inflame your heart, Expressed in praise. So I'm going to ask Jeff and Hannah to come back up because that's what I want us to do in this moment. But in order to do that, I've got to ask some questions. My job, Luke, is to pray all week for you. Some of you by name because I know it, some of you not because I don't know your name, but I'm still praying for everyone who comes in here. So fill out the prayer request. Get serious tonight. Part of my job is also to bring the word of God and to express what I feel like he's laying on my heart. And in this moment, I feel a question that needs to be asked. What is the source or the deepest pursuit of your heart and your mind? Is it Christ? Or is it only ever those things that leave you wanting more? That can do nothing for you. God gave it all up to gain you because he loves you and he loves you way too much to leave you the way you are. He wants to see you change. He wants to see you free from the burden of always needing more stuff. He wants to see you overwhelmed by 